0: Connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We've been in this series for... Uh, this will make uh, 16 weeks. Next week, we'll wrap it up. So we did all 16 chapters in 17 weeks. I can't even believe that we, be, we were able to make it through all of that. But here we are. Uh, we're closing out chapter 15 today. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to grab it. Head over to the second half of chapter 15, verses 16 through 47. This is where we're going to be camped out today. I want to remind you of our Ask Anything program as well. If you have any questions during the message, you can text them to that phone number, and then uh, we will get back to you uh, today, we'll get back to you with a text answer. We'll try to respond to you, because we're just kind of running out of time on all of this, because um, we want to soak in the passage today, because it's a critical passage for us to truly understand. Uh, Why do I say that? Because of this. Let me just ask a question. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever sinned in your life? Hang on, just keep them up. I want to make sure we got everybody. Okay, because if you don't have your hand up, you're a liar, and then that would also be sin, right? So here's the deal, right? Um, You don't know this. I just asked if you sinned, you raised your hand. So here's what this means. According to Romans, we just admitted to falling short of the standard that God set, so therefore, get this, we are deserving of death. We've just raised our hands and brought on ourselves a death sentence because of the sin in our life. And there's not a single one of us that, that can say, oh, well, that's not me. Because we all have sinned and fall short. And, and here's what I want us to do. I don't, I don't do this very often, but I think it's appropriate for the text that we're talking about today. I just want you to think about the sin in your life. Whether you're 8 or 88, just kind of think through all the sin that you've committed in your life. Kind of take an inventory real quick. I know it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Like, this is horrible. I hate doing this. And yet, when I stop and I think about all that I've done in my life, the lying, the cheating, the gossip, the slandering, the murder, even if it wasn't physically, it was by word of mouth, destroying somebody's reputation, taking somebody's job and livelihood from them. I mean, just think about all of the sin that we have in our lives. And I'm not going to ask you to stand up and and tell us, okay? Thank goodness, right? Because honestly, that's like a fear for every one of us. We, We, to the core of who we are, we never want anyone to know who we truly are. The thoughts that we have and the things that we do and where we've been, we don't. Every one of us, there's not a single one of us that is outside of that. And I will promise you this. If that was the case today and why I had to put my sins up on the screen for you today, you would get up and walk out. I promise you. The damage I've done with my life and the people that I've caused pain and hurt to, the lying, the cheating, the malicious acts you would walk out. I think every one of us know that's true about each and every one of us. What would it take for you to make right all of those sins? I'll just answer the question. You, there's nothing you could do. It's impossible, isn't it? Like, like some of the things I've done in my life, I, uh, I'm embarrassed by, I'm ashamed of, There's people that um, I struggle with today because I know what I did to them years ago. And I can't make that right. There's nothing I can do to make it right because I caused them pain and I hurt them. It's impossible to make any of that right. And yet that's what the text that we're gonna be in today is all about. It's why what we read today has to be there because of your sin and because of mine. And if we're just being open and honest today, this text, we we really need to let this text marinate a little bit. We need to soak it up and understand what we're reading today. And I'm going to point out some things today because the text seems to, to slide over some things. It just makes a quick statement. It keeps moving on. And yet there's so much to that. That we need to stop and dwell on because this is exactly what Christ did for each and every one of us. See, last week, if you were here, we were in the last portion of chapter 14 into the first part of 15. We talked about where they came in, they arrested Jesus, even though, get this, he didn't have any sin. Like he was the opposite of you and me. He was perfect, he was flawless, sinless. And they arrested him and they put him on trial. And he went through several trials. He ended up in Pilate's court. And Pilate can't find anything wrong with him. He knows he's innocent. And so he concocts this idea of how he's going to release Jesus, even though these people want to kill him. And so what does he do? He sends Jesus off. He beats him. He flogs him. We'll talk more about that later. Brings him back, battered. Stands him up in front of all the people. And stands next to him, Barabbas, a liar. A liar. A cheat, a murderer, an insurrectionist, a thief, a robber, somebody like you and me. And he asks the people, which one do you want me to set free? And they choose that dude. And out of frustration, Pilate says, well, what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? What do you want me to do with this man? He's innocent. What has he done? And they begin to chant, crucify him, crucify him. We are messed up, aren't we? And yet, Pilate does this thing, uh, it's a Jewish custom, really, he washes his hands almost as if to say, look, I don't want any part of this. And he releases Barabbas, the murderer, the sinner, the thief. And he sends, the sinless Jesus off to be prepared for execution. Now the problem with this whole story as we're getting into it is it gets very uncomfortable. Because as we, as we read through this, if we truly take it in, we understand that it's horrific. What's happening, happening is horrible, horrible. It repulses each and every one of us. And yet we strangely feel part of this plot. Somehow we end up on the wrong side of justice. As we survey this story and we begin to look at all the different players in the story, we come to a place where we don't like any of them because they're all wrong. They're all jacked up except for Jesus and everyone around, the Romans and the religious leaders and the crowd and everyone. And we begin to this place where we start to go, I hate those people. Look at what they're doing. And yet in that moment, we have to realize that we are among them. We are no different than any one of them. We pick the story up as Jesus heads towards crucifixion in verse 16. It says the soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. He wanted to make sure everybody was involved in this fun. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, "Hail, king of the Jews!" And they struck him on the head with a reed stick, spit on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified." Now, I've told you all the way through this entire series that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels, and they're all telling the same story from different perspectives, and you pick up different things from each one of them. And as you lay them side by side and you begin to read these stories, you find out that in this moment, Jesus has been flogged, scourged, is what some of the translations say. And and it's this, this punishment that was so wicked and brutal that it was illegal to flog a Roman citizen without the direct edict from the Caesar himself. That's how bad this was. And it's when they would take somebody and they would tie them to a post or, or they would tie them to a wall and the idea was to stretch out the back to make the, the muscles tight so that they could take a whip and, and many times it was called a cat of nine tails. And honestly, I couldn't find a very good description of one picture for you. Uh, but this kind of gives you an idea. Uh, many times it would have nine strips of leather that would come off of it, and, and uh, they would put sharp things in the ends of these strands, and, and it didn't matter to them. As long as it was sharp, it would cut. It could be bone, it could be metal, it could be glass. It didn't matter. Uh, and, and what they would do is they would stretch the victim out, and then they would take the whip and not whip like you and I think, where it's just a, a snap or a crack, but this would be more of a, a laying it across the back or the buttocks or the legs to get it to stick, and then in a downward jerking motion, they would pull it across the skin to rip open the skin. And many times, some of these would wrap around and they would poke out eyes and they would, they would break teeth off. And what's interesting is when it came to flogging or scourging for the Jews, they had a rule. You could only do it 40 times. And so they would do it 39 to make sure they didn't miscount and didn't go over. But when it came to the Romans, which is what we're reading here, they didn't care. Like they just went until they were bored or they were tired. Uh, Many times the vertebrae would be exposed or the intestines would spill out of the victim. And, And this is why historians say only... Uh, about four out of ten would even survive the punishment. Six out of ten would die during the scourging. And yet, this is what Jesus went through. Even before he was let out to be crucified. And then they would take um, some thorns, some branches with thorns, and they would wrap them into a crown. And, and if you go to Israel today, you'll see these trees all over Palestine. And I don't know if you can tell from the picture, but uh, when you get close to these things, it is amazing How hard and sharp and long these thorns are. And and the Roman soldiers would cut the branches off, let them dry, and then they would make this crown of thorns. And this is what they would drive down into the the nerve endings on his forehead and his brow. And it, it was to imitate a coronation wreath of a Roman leader. And they were mocking him Hail, King of the Jews! Uh, they would strip Jesus down to nothing, which by the way, was a very shameful experience for a very modest Jew, and they dressed him in a purple robe, probably this old faded military cape that they had laying around. They would kneel before him, fake worship. And the text says, eh, when they got bored, when they got tired of it, then they decided to move on. Um, the blood from Jesus' back, his open wounds, would have started to coagulate with the fibers in that purple robe until eventually one of the soldiers would mercilessly rip it off of his back, which would open up all those wounds again. They'd put his clothes back on him, which is interesting because usually they would be led to crucifixion naked. And, and this is probably the nicest thing that they would do for Jesus all day long. The text says, then they led him away to be crucified. Then they led him away to be crucified. That's all we get. Uh, But if you do a a study in history, you'll find out that these execution squads were normally one centurion and four legionnaires that had been trained for this. Uh, They loved it. It was their job to cause as much pain as possible to prolong death. Because this was a sign to everyone else, to any nation that they had um, defeated, that any people they were trying to oppress, that this is what happens when you come up against Rome. Uh, Like I said, normally the victim would be marched out naked and and scourged along the way, and yet in Jesus' case, they clothed him back up. They they didn't, from best we can tell, scourge him on the way to the cross because he had already been beaten so bad before this ever started. And what we find out Is in this moment that Jesus survives all of this. Even before the cross, this is what he goes through. He's forced to carry a cross beam. It's it's the vertical part, I'm sorry, the horizontal part of the cross. And and he's uh, forced to carry this on his shoulders, uh, which to me, I, I find very fascinating because if you lay that alongside Genesis 22, 6, there's an interesting little parallel. It's very reminiscent of Abraham when he's called to sacrifice his son, and they go to the mountain, and he takes the firewood off of the donkey, and he places it on Isaac, who's going to be crucified. He places it on his back, and he's the one that carries it up the hill. And in this manner, Jesus picks up the cross, and he begins to carry it Uh, This cross beam, they estimate, would probably be around 75 pounds, and a a beam that size of just raw wood would be excruciating for Jesus to carry on a back that's already been filleted by scourging. He would make his way down the Via Della Rosa, and again, if you get to go to Israel with us, we walk this entire path. Via Della Rosa just means the way of suffering. It's the path that he walked all the way out to execution. Uh, There's an interesting detail, though, that Mark gives in verse 21, It says a passerby named Simon who was from Cyrene was coming in from the countryside just then and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, uh, John Mark writes this down because in the early church, this becomes very important. Uh, We find out through historians that Simon ends up being a figure in the early church. And how would you not if you had to carry the cross of Christ with him, right? Um, they, they believe that they've actually found the grave site where Alexander, his son, is buried. They, they became prominent members within the church. Why? Because they were uh, first-hand witnesses of Jesus giving his life for us. He's said from uh, Cyrene, which is the North Shore of Africa. He is all the way from the North Shore of Africa, but he's made his way all the way into Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, he's a devout Jew. And he's coming in as the procession is coming out with Jesus. And the soldiers force him to step in and carry the cross for him. Now, as they would go along, the centurion charge would... uh, He would... go out in front of whoever the victim was and he would clear the path to make sure that they could get him to where they need to get him so they can execute him. He would have an assistant that would be walking alongside the victim holding a plaque which would actually spell out the charges. And why did they do this? Because the Romans wanted everyone to see this. They they would make a big show out of it. They would want them to know this was the crime and if you do this, this will happen to you. And when we get to the story of Jesus... Pilate has the sign written up, and the sign just simply says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. There is no crime. There is no charge. It's just simply a statement of fact. He's the king of the Jews. Uh, They continue on in verse 22. And they brought Jesus to a place called Gagatha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine, drugged with myrrh, sorry, But he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. Hang on to that nugget of of truth right there, okay? Because that will come up a little bit later. I want you to remember that. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews, two revolutionaries were crucified with him. One on his right and one on his left. Uh, the place of execution is a hill. It's called Golgotha. Uh, that's a Hebrew word. Uh, we translated it years and years ago into Latin, and that's where we get the word Calvary. So if you ever get confused between Golgotha and Calvary, they're the same word in two la- different languages, but they both mean place of the skull. And it's surprising when you read through the, the crucifixion story, no matter which gospel you pick, how reserved they are when they're talking about the crucifixion. It, it's It's just like simply stated, you know, um, they crucified him. It's almost as though to a first century Christian, you didn't even have to give any more detail because they saw it all the time. They knew what this meant. And yet you and I, 2,000 years removed, we read it and it just kind of, goes by us like nothing. I don't want us to do that today. I want us to embrace this. I want us to lean into it as awkward and as hard as it is. And I want us to understand, because why, why would Jesus go through this? Remember that list of sins we talked about earlier? Yours and mine. Um, When it came to crucifixion, the Romans had perfected it. It was their uh, their preferred choice of execution. They loved it because it scared everyone, and rightfully so. If you do some research on it, you'll find out there were four different crosses that they would use. The first one was the simplest. It was just a, a straight up vertical pole. They would nail their hands above their head and their feet lower. Uh, then they came up with an X, so they would spread out the hands and the feet. Then there was a, more like a capital T where the, the top cross beam would set down on top of the upright. And then they had one that was more of a lower cross. And for us, uh, as Christians, many times you'll see that one as the one that Jesus died on. And the reason for that, and we do believe that that's correct, is because there is a, a little mention in scripture that this plaque that we just talked about was nailed above Jesus' head. Well, the only way that could happen is if it was a lower shape or lower case T. And so first, Jesus would have hauled the cross beam up the hill. They would have taken it, they would have nailed it to the upright, and then they would have taken Jesus, and they would have nailed his hands with square iron spikes. Now, the interesting thing about this is there's a lot of debate as to whether it's actually his hands, because let's be honest, any painting that we see, or many movies, right, or statues, it's always the hands, right in the middle of the hand. And yet we know that for an adult, especially an adult male, if you nail this, it's just going to rip, it's not going to hold the weight, But what we find out is the original word that's used there in in the Hebrew, actually in the uh, Greek, actually goes from the fingertips to the elbow. So it's the whole forearm. And and what we believe, and I I believe this is accurate, is that the, the nail wasn't driven through his hand. They dropped down below the wrist and it went in between the radius and the ulna. And for several reasons, because this would have held the weight, but also this is a lot more painful. It would have severed nerves. It, it would have caused the hand to cramp up. There, there's a lot of reasons why Romans would have used this instead. And so what about the feet then? Because if you look at any statue or many paintings, right, the feet are kind of laid over one another, right, really nice and politely. And there's one nail driven through, right? This is what we, this is what we think. And, I, and I'm, I don't mean to be joking about that. I'm just trying to get our attention because this is brutal and yet we've turned it into something that we just casually look at and go, oh, isn't that nice? Jesus was crucified for me. Let me ask you a question, hypothetically. If you were one of the legionnaires and you were having to execute somebody on a cross, how hard, difficult would it be for you to be able to drive a nail through both of their feet? Especially if they didn't want to go. Right? Are you with me? I don't mean to be rude or, you know, um, I'm just trying to get our attention here this morning. What's interesting is something happened in 1968. They were doing some excavating uh, outside of the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. And they unearthed a box of bones. And it was a guy, his wife, and two of his kids. And, and he was a crucifixion victim. How do they know that? Well, because his right heel actually still had the nail in it. And it's a very fascinating find. Because as they were looking... Where did I go here? There we go. Uh, it's very fascinating because when they measured the nail. The nail was only four and a half inches long. But yet, they believe that what happened is when they were driving the nail through his heel, it went in and hit the cross, hit the wood, hit a knot, and actually tur- curved and bent. And because of that, they couldn't get the nail out of his foot, so they just buried him with it. Now, this is a great find for us because it gave us more insight into how Jesus may have been crucified. Um, so, not only was he nailed through, lower the wrists, but then they would have taken the feet, they would have pulled them alongside the upright beam, and they would have driven nails through both of his heels into the beam. Now, as if crucifixion wasn't bad enough with the nails in the hands and the nails in the feet, we see in verse 29 that they're mocked as well. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoff, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. So not only do we have the the soldiers who mocked him, but now we have this large crowd of people moving in and out of Jerusalem that are going by where Jesus is being crucified. They're going in and out because of Passover, because they're getting ready for the Sabbath. You'll see that here in a minute. And so large crowds in this moment. And they're, they're mocking him. The religious leaders, they mock him as well. Uh, they, they say, hey, if, if Jesus is the son of God, then God's not gonna let him die. He'll rescue him. Which is interesting for a religious leader to know because they should have known prophecy because that's not what prophecy said. Prophecy said this in Isaiah 53, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him, to cause him grief, Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. So it was foretold 700 years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene that the Messiah would be crushed. And yet they're saying, hey, come down off the cross. And if you come down off the cross, then, then we'll believe you. Do you really believe that they meant that? See, I don't. Because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And what did they do with him? They tried to kill him. I believe even if in this moment Jesus wanted to and he came down off the cross, they would have just taken him and tried to nail him back to the cross. Why? Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. That's because of that unbelief that it gets very, very dark in verse 33. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, I want to push pause on this story just for a minute uh, because I, I think this is an amazing, amazing verse. Uh, we see here at the very end, Jesus is quoting, he's saying, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or my God, my God, why are you, you abandoning me? Is what another translation says. And, and so as we look at that so often, we look past what's actually happening here. Uh, I think it's incredible that you and I read this in, in the year 2023 and it's hard for us really to understand the magnitude of his statement. I want us to think about the scene just for a minute. Jesus has been crucified, he's on the cross, he's probably two feet off the ground and all these people are surrounding him Religious leaders. The, the thieves on both sides are making fun of him. The people passing by are making fun of him. You've got the, the ladies who have followed him, along with John, they're down front weeping. And in this moment, Jesus begins to, to quote Psalm 22. And you and I read it. We, and so often I've heard it taught where, you know, it's just the fact that God was turning away from him in this moment, he was feeling that. But I think there's a lot more at play here, way more, probably more than we could ever wrap our minds around or understand Uh, because you have all the Pharisees and you have the Jews there that knew their scriptures and they knew the Psalms, they would sing them and, and Psalm 22 in particular is a messianic Psalm. It's prophesying about the coming Messiah and many of us, we know Psalm 23, it's all about the good shepherd. But just before that, preceding it, is the Psalm of God's sacrificial lamb. And before I show you portions of this, I want you to keep in mind it was written about 1,000 B.C., 600 years before crucifixion ever became a thing. And I believe that King David is writing this, and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's just writing down what he's getting. He probably didn't even understand all of it, yet in this moment, it all plays out. So as Jesus is on the cross... They're making fun of him. They're saying the things that they're saying. They're doing the things that they did. Keep those in mind. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me or why have you forsaken me? And I believe that in their minds, it would have taken them back to Psalm 22. And this is what they would have remembered. And see if this rings true for what you've read in the text so far, all right? Psalm 22, it says this. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And automatically, they would have started thinking through this. Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Going to verse six. But I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. Do not stay so far from me, for trouble is near, and no one else can help me. My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in. Like lions, they open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. My life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, melting within me. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to Him. All the families of the nations will bow down before Him, for royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship, bow before Him, all who are mortal, all those, all whose lives will end as dust. Our children will also serve Him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord, you and me. And it ends this way, his righteous acts will be told to these not yet born today. They will hear about everything he has done. Some of your translations say everything he has finished. I think in this moment, there was so much going on. I think the Pharisees were remembering the prophecy. I think the Jews may have been sitting there going, I know this. Oh my gosh, like everything in that is playing out right now. They're gambling for his clothes. People are mark, um, they're mocking him. His feet and his hands have been nailed. And it would, have been, it would have been pointing back to the prophecy of the coming Messiah. It's interesting to me that Jesus isn't just quoting Psalm 22, but he's actually describing his present suffering. His separation from his heavenly father. Think about it. I mean, for all of eternity, Jesus has never known what it's like to be separated from God. And yet, in this moment, Jesus is forsaken by God. He's left without God's resources or his intervention. He's left to suffer and die alone. Why? For our sins. For that list that we talked about earlier. The, the mocking continues here in verse 35 to some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. They misheard Eloi, Eloi, thinking he was talking about Elijah, And it just gave them one more opportunity to mock him. And yet, uh, when you take a look at Mark, Mark just says that Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. If you go to John and you go to Luke, you find out that some of what Jesus said at the end was it is finished. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he's actually quoting other prophecy when he's saying that. Um, It says here that the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, It was believed in the temple that in the Holy of Holies, which was the far inner room where the uh, Ark of the Covenant was kept, that that's where God's presence dwelt. And no one could go in and out of there. There was only one time a year that a, a priest, uh, after going through all of this ritual, would be able to walk in there before the presence of God. And nobody else could walk in there, because that, that's where God dwelled. And yet, in this moment, when Christ died, it says that that or that veil was torn from top to bottom, which is significant from God coming down to humanity. It, why? Because uh, what that means is no longer do we have to go to the temple and make sacrifices to be made right with God. No longer was God's presence contained within the Holy of Holies. Because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, he, our sins are forgiven. When we receive Christ, it says that we are forgiven, we're washed in his blood, and we receive God's Holy Spirit to dwell within us. It says literally that you are now the temple. That God's presence goes with all of his people. And this is the significance behind this this curtain, incredible curtain. It was like sixty foot high and thirty foot wide, and they said it was it was about three inches thick. And it ripped from the top to the bottom signifying that it's finished. The new covenant has been established because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And even an unbeliever took notice of this. Look at verse 39. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw now how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. Uh, You compare all the gospels together you see amazing things you see the darkness you see the earthquake you see all these things happening and this soldier who's standing there has been a, a witness to all of it sees it all unfold and he makes the statement he surely must be the son of God it's interesting that this was the blasphemy that Jesus was being crucified for a short time ago the crowds mocked Jesus for saying that very thing and now this soldier honors him by by assigning that title to him so now Jesus is dead. What happens next? Go to verse 40. Some women were there marching, uh, watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Siloam. They had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in uh, Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. As evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honored member of the high council and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead. So he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead. So Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. And it ends this way Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. And we come to the end of chapter 15. We find out that it's Friday afternoon. Jesus has died somewhere around 3 p.m., and we're coming up on the Sabbath. Now, you and I, we work our days from the morning to night through the night. That's a day for us. But for the Jews, it's the opposite. They actually start at sundown and go till the next sundown. So it's night and then day. And so their Sabbath would actually start at sundown. And so they're up against a time crunch. And Deuteronomy 21 told them that they couldn't leave a body out like that uh, in, in, on the Sabbath. Um, and if they, if, they, if they got to sundown... They couldn't do any work. They couldn't go do anything about it. And so Joseph figures he's got three hours in there to get this done and so he takes a chance. And, and Joseph actually is mentioned here. He's got a high, he comes with high, high uh, resume. He's a part of the high council. You get a, a feeling like he's a, a believer, like he's maybe one of the ones that were left out of those early trials and he didn't agree with, with what was happening. And so now he takes a chance and he goes to Pilate and says, let me have the body. Um, he gets the body, and we're told in in another gospel that another person that takes part in this is Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes, and he's got 75 pounds of spices or ointment to anoint the body, and the the reason they would do that and wrap it in linen is just to hold the stench down as the body decayed. But they've got to do all of this before the sun goes down. Now, the tomb, we're told, uh, was actually carved out of white limestone, We're told that it wasn't used. It was a brand new tomb. It had never been used before. And so they take Jesus' body. They wrap it in the linens. And all the while, they're putting the ointment. They're putting the spices on the body. And these tombs were about nine foot square. Enough for about six ledges. They would carve these ledges out of them. And and the reason for that is uh, their burial process is a lot different than ours. They would take the body. They would wrap it. They would lay it on one of those shelves and let it decay for an entire year. And their mourning period, it was said after a year that the mourning period was over and a member of the family would actually go into the tomb and they would take all the bones and put them in a box. And then that shelf could be used for the next person. And in in this way, an entire family could use one tomb. And Jesus' body has been prepped by Joseph, by Nicodemus. They take it in, They, they lay it on this ledge, which is designed for this purpose, just to allow his body to decay they leave and they take a large stone and they roll it into a V-shaped groove right in front of the door. That's done for several reasons. It's to hold the smell in, right? To keep people from going in and out, also to keep animals out. So there was a lot of reasons for that. And they would roll the stone in front of the entrance. Um, Why did all that have to happen? Because you and I raised our hands at the beginning of this message. Because we've all fallen short of God's standard. Because without him, we have no hope of making any of that right. And so God, because of his love for us, sends his son to die on a cross for us to take care of the sins, the the sins that you and I have committed and unfortunately will continue to commit in our lives, right? Because we're not perfect. Now we're trying to become more like Christ every day, but let's be honest, we're not perfect. And this sacrificial lamb, Jesus, our Messiah, the son of God, his sacrifice was so great that it paid for your sins yesterday, today, and forever. This is the story behind the death and burial of Jesus. But what I love about this story is it doesn't end here. Mark doesn't stop with 15 chapters. I like the way this ends because it literally says that there were two Marys, right? And they come and, and they so love Jesus. They're devoted to him. They want to express their love and they want to honor him in such a way. But in this moment, they can't. They just simply can't. And so what do they do? They follow him to the grave They find out where he's buried, and then they go back to prepare for Sabbath with the plan that they'll eventually, after Sabbath is over, they're going to come back to the grave. But that is what we're going to talk about next week, and so I hope you'll come back for that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God of love, that you loved us so much that you sent your son. Lord, so often we take that for granted. We say it. We don't even think about what we're saying. And Lord, I pray that today you're just waking us up to this high price that was paid so that we might gather, we might worship, we might live lives worthy of your calling. Lord, today um, we just want to acknowledge that we fall so short of your standard. Lord, but we thank you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, I pray there's not a single person in this room that will leave here today taking that for granted, but we'll just develop this gratitude, this, this heart of thankfulness. And Lord, I pray that that would drive us into this week, that we'd be so thankful, that our focus would be on you and the sacrifice that you paid, and that we would just find ourselves in these moments of just remembering how sweet, um, how sweet your love is that we can call ourselves the sons and daughters of God. Lord, thank you for all that you've done. We just pray that you would receive this worship as pleasing to your ears. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said.